Co-founder Wes Jackson is is known for saying that if if your work can be achieved in your lifetime, you're not thinking big enough. Uh, we very much live that at the at the Land Institute. You may not be familiar with the Land Institute, based in Salina, Kansas. It's a nonprofit scientific research organization founded in 1976 by Wes and Dana Jackson. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. As the name suggests, the Land Institute is concerned with taking care of the land and with developing perennial grain food crops that replenish the soil, prevent erosion, and have economic benefits, among other things. Let's get into some of those things right now with my guest, Tammy Kimbler, Chief Communications Officer at the Land Institute. Perennial grain agriculture really has the opportunity to transform the food system with new hardware by developing long-lived perennial alternatives to major grain crops, including cereals, legumes, and oilseeds. Unlike annual crops, perennial crops persist for many harvests without replanting. So you may be familiar with annual crops like wheat or corn. Those crops are planted every year and they die or are, are chemically terminated and then harvested. That constant soil disturbance of having to plant an annual crop and then replant the annual crop actually comes at a rather high ecological and economic cost. And because of how long we've been doing annual agriculture, but particularly in the last several hundred years, the ecosystem compromise has become unsustainable. And it's forced to ever higher inputs of chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and fossil fuel energy to maintain the yields that feed the world. But what are grains? So the term grains broadly encompasses all plants that are harvested for their edible seeds, but particularly crops that resemble and are harvested like the first domesticated crops that humanity has grown, like rice and wheat, which are very old. Um, the seeds are typically dry on the plants before the harvest, and then they're threshed all at once to remove the plant material to produce the grain that we eat. The grain crops are grown and primarily processed for seeds. And then the grains are valued for the kinds of stable, staple nutrients that they produce, like starch, which is predominant in cereals, oil, which is energy from oil seeds, and protein from legumes, also known as pulse crops if they're edible. Legumes? What are those? So a good example of a legume is uh, a soybean. Um, so soybean's an edible bean crop. There are many bean crops, um, legume crops that are not edible. In fact, it's a very common um, 
plant in the natural world. Um, but a pulse is specifically an edible, human edible legume crop. Are, are things like lentils? Yes. Other examples would be lentils, pinto beans, uh, chickpeas, um, a lot of right. individual small uh, grain. They're often called grain legumes. Right. And then oil seeds are things we get oil from, I guess. Yes. So <laughs> soybean is also an oil seed. Uh, it can be produced for its oil. Other oil seeds are sunflower is a is a big one. Corn, um, cotton seed. Those are all. Canola is also one a, a very big um, oil seed crop. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Tammy Kimbler. She's Chief Communications Officer for the Land Institute. And we're talking about perennial crops. Uh, but, but going back to annual crops, um, how much of our food now comes from grains such as wheat, rice, oats, cornmeal, barley that are annual crops? Over 70% of the food calories that feed humanity come from annual grain crops. And those crops occupy between 60 to 80% of global croplands. Mm -hmm. So grains are incredibly important to human communities. And corn, soybeans, rice, and wheat are the four biggest grain crops produced in the world. So they're incredibly important and they really do underpin the food that we eat all over the world. All right. And then what do annual crops require in terms of resources? You mentioned things like fertilizers, um, I assume water, things like that. Uh, yeah, so tell us about that. Well, I am not a farmer myself. I did actually grow up on a ranch and farm in far northern California, uh, <laughs> near the Oregon border. And my dad grew winter wheat mm -hmm. most years. And winter wheat is planted in the fall. So to prepare the field, it's plowed, which requires you know tractors. Right. We weren't using horses. <laughs> it requires plowing, um, which, by the way, releases stored carbon in the soil profile and contributes to uh, global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, then a fertilizer, a nitrogen fertilizer is applied and seeds are planted and then they're usually drilled so there's not a lot of additional tillage needed at that point. And then the seeds sprout before the ground freezes and then it goes dormant during the winter. In the spring, the crop comes back it's in the grass family, so like your lawn, mm -hmm. spring wheat comes back in the spring, and it's fertilized again, and then it may also have applications of herbicides to control weeds, pesticides to control insects, fungicides to control uh, fungal diseases like, you know, molds and right, right. mildew. Um, again, there are probably several other applications of fertilizer. And then eventually the wheat uh, grain heads will ripen and the plant will die. Everything will uh, senesce and, and become ready for harvest 
and then it's harvested again mechanically with a combine um, and the grain is cleaned and processed and and moved into the supply chain. So that process has to happen every single year right. with every single annual grain crop. Right. Right. Um, there are different permutations depending on the crops you're growing, but that's a lot of mechanical and chemical inputs uh, in that crop. Right. And then what's that doing to the soil and the creatures in the soil? One of my uh, ecologists who works, um, works with insects and, and biodiversity likens annual crops to fast food for the microbiome. Right. So <laughs> she, she describes it as, you know, these plants are in the ground for a short period of time during the year. So the microbiome that grows up around those shallow roots has to get in, get what it can and get out before the plant dies. Mm -hmm. And it creates a very um, short-term cycle that does not persist in the soil profile mm -hmm. over the long term. So it's, it's, it's not particularly beneficial for the soil. Even if you leave um, the, the plant material behind, like in a no-till environment, it's slightly better. But the, the tilling in particular is really hard on the soil. It releases carbon, it potentially releases nitrogen, um, it disturbs the, the soil structure mm -hmm. so that water cannot effectively infiltrate and it leaves the soil exposed to erosion. So wind erosion, water erosion, um, and all of those excess nutrients just either move into the air or move into your water system like rivers and streams. And that causes all sorts of issues uh, downstream with um, polluting rivers and with silt and excess um, nutrients right. and eventually, like in the case of the Mississippi, moving into the Gulf of Mexico and creating all sorts of problems for marine life. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here with Tammy Kimbler, Chief Communications Officer for the Land Institute. Um, I understand from USDA that about 80% of what we grow in the U.S. is corn. Is there a perennial crop that could take the place of at least some of that corn? So the closest corn relative that the Land Institute is currently working on is breeding perennial sorghum. So sorghum is a tropical grass species that was domesticated as a grain crop in sub-Saharan Africa about 8,000 years ago. And nutritionally, sorghum is very similar to corn with slightly higher protein levels and few other tweaks, but it's, it's pretty close and it has a similar uh, habitat and structure. So we're really interested in the prospect of developing sorghum, but the difficulty with sorghum is that, as I mentioned, it's a tropical grass as actually is corn. So it's not as well suited to cold environments. Right. Um, 
so the idea that it would replace corn in Iowa, say, where they have a winter, or Minnesota, where I live, um, is probably not possible in the short term. But sorghum is grown extensively throughout Africa and other tropical regions of and subtropical regions of, of the world. So having that as an option right. to replace corn in those environments would be really beneficial. Yeah. We are also very interested in the prospects of developing perennial corn in the future, but most likely that effort would not happen in the United States. It would probably be something we would help start and catalyze with expertise and funding in a country like Mexico, where corn is indigenous. You, you uh, gave us a picture of an annual crop. How is a perennial crop different in, in terms of its life cycle and it, the resources that are needed for it to grow? There are many types of native ecosystems on the planet, like forests, grasslands, tropical rainforest, wetlands. That's just a few of many, many types of native ecosystems. The vast majority of these systems have plants that share two predominant qualities, diversity and perenniality. These ecosystems built the soils on the planet. And these are the same soils that we farm today. So in the Great Plains, we have the prairies of the Midwest. These prairies are what have created the incredible rich soil that now grows corn and soybeans. The difference with perennial grains is that they build soil because of their perennial and diverse nature of staying in place having robust ecological diversity above ground and below ground. We mentioned that fast food. <laughs> Perennials are slow food. Perennials are a slow food for, uh, for their below ground and above ground communities so that they can persist. Right. You have a very different system that can live year over year over year than one that gets torn up and replaced every year. So the organic matter that is made of these multi-year investments by many different species of roots over time creates the structure that allows for water to infiltrate into the soil, to host this vast microbial communities of life under underground and above ground. Mm -hmm. And then it's taking much more effective use of resources because their root structures typically go much deeper than an annual crop. For instance, Kernza, which I mentioned before, um, which is a, a, a novel grain that we're working on, it has a 10 foot long root structure. Wow. So it's accessing nutrients and water in the soil structure much deeper than a one meter uh, annual wheat root would. Right. And you can imagine the life that could coexist in a structure like that. Uh, and that's just one plant. Right, that's pretty impressive. So so in many ways, it's, it's like a tree, mm -hmm. sort of. 
You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan here with Tammy Kimbler, Chief Communications Officer for the Land Institute. Um, and so uh, there are some specific plants, and you've mentioned one, which is the Kernza, uh, that are being developed at the Land Institute. Um, I wanted to go down the list of them and hear about what they are and what the food is that comes from them. Uh, so can we start? We can start with Kernza. Sure. So Kernza perennial grain is a grain produced from intermediate wheatgrass. That's the its common name. And intermediate wheatgrass is native to the steppes, which extend. They're like the Midwest of of Eurasia and Russia. Um, and so it, I think, I think when it was brought to the United States in the '30s by the USDA, if I can anthropomorphize uh, intermediate wheatgrass for a moment, I think when it encountered the Midwest, it was very much at home. It recognized a very similar ecosystem right. uh, as to what it left, and. So it's very much adapted to a prairie environment, um, which is why it's been a candidate, uh, not only of the land institutes, but of the USDA and Rodale uh, Institute before us uh, as a potential grain crop. Um, but it was predominantly brought here as a forage. The, the, another crop that we did not directly develop, but that we have um, assisted partners in developing is perennial rice. Perennial rice was developed by researchers in Yunnan, China, uh, at an agricultural university there. And we provided some seed money and a lot of international technical assistance for that team to help them bring perennial rice uh, to bear. And the breakthroughs that that organization has been able to make with perennial rice are astounding. Just last year, they were able to show that perennial their strains of perennial rice are at yield, at comparable yields with conventional commercial rice varieties, and that they live, the plant lives for four years with eight harvests, because you harvest rice twice a year. And there were significant ecological and social benefits. Basically, farmers, it was more ecologically viable for them because it took a lot less labor mm -hmm. and they only had to buy seed once and plant it. And then they got all of these harvests. And as a perennial, it will definitely need to be in those, those tropical regions. In the United States, if and when it gets here, uh, it will probably be grown in the very, very, very far south of the country. Perennial wheat is being bred at the Land Institute here in Kansas. And that's a cross, a hybrid cross between various wheat lines, but for example, a Durham wheat, which is often used in pasta, and it's a cross with Kernza. So we're taking the, the perenniality of Kernza and the, the um, annual agricultural benefits of the annual wheat, like big seed, harvestability, um, threshability, and combining them. And 
we're also working on two other crops, uh, sanfoin, which is a legume crop that comes from a forage system. It's a tiny, tiny little pulse similar to a, to a lentil. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had the pleasure of eating it a number of times and it, it actually tastes more like a chickpea than it does a lentil, but, um, that's being worked on. And then a perennial oil seed called silflower, which comes from a native Great Plains wild sunflower called Silphium integrifolium. Did you say silt? S-I-L-T? S-I-L flower. So silflower. Sil. Okay. Silflower. All right. And and what's, uh, what's the outlook in terms of, uh, you know, are any of these ready for prime time or not yet perennial rice is is not only ready for prime time but moving into prime time um the uh the groups in china that are commercializing that are planting probably now i have been planting it extensively um and we haven't had reports back since the breakthrough last year as to how many new Acres have been planted, but uh, we understand it to be t- fairly considerable because farmers have been asking for it and those that have grown it prefer it. Uh, so that that's moving, which is very exciting. Um, Kernza is already in commercial production in the United States, albeit at a very small novel grain size. There's only about 4,000 acres in the U.S., predominantly in the between Kansas, Montana, and Minnesota, although the, it is in a number of places across the U.S., but that's where most of the the acres are. And it's still very young, though. It's only been on the market, meaning that consumers can purchase it, since about 2019. So oh. very new um, and and slowly developing. So people can actually buy it somewhere? Yes. Uh, there are, as, actually, as of today, there are the most Kernza products on the market as there have ever been. It's very popular used in beer. Uh, there have been a few distilled spirits. And then it's available whole grain, flour, pasta, crackers. Um, there's a pancake Several pancake and waffle mixes, um, actually, I think three or four. And it's it's picking up steam, which is exciting. And then a lot of bakers use it in their, um, in their breads and pastries. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan here with Tammy Kimbler, Chief Communications Officer at Land Institute. Um, and I was curious about how these new varieties do in extreme heat and drought. Yes, the, that is actually something we've been working on uh, in the last few years is because of the perennial nature of these crops, they they have the potential to be adaptable to various climate environments, whether that's extreme weather events like rain and flooding or drought events. And drought has been pretty persistent in the U.S. uh, in the last few years. 
And so we're working with a, a broad consortium of researchers, farmers, and ranchers um, along the Colorado to test whether sanfoin, silflower, and kernza can persist in these extreme drought conditions. And the the main factor there is whether they get enough moisture when they're established, um, when they're planted. And as long as they can get enough moisture when they're planted to establish themselves and then get a little bit of moisture, I mean, they do need water. Right. It's just they have, if they can grow and be able to access water deeper in the profile and hold on to the water they get when there is moisture, then they're able to persist. So we don't have the outcomes of that yet, but these plants are are much more genetically diverse than annual mm -hmm. grain plants are, meaning there is a lot of diversity within the, the gene pool. And that typically gives them the ability to flex based on the environment that they're grown in. So, uh, you know, getting people to change how they do anything is very challenging. Um, how do you, or how does the Land Institute envision changing how farmers farm, which is what you're eventually proposing? What's interesting is farmers, they know how important the soil is. They know how important uh, soil health and water health and preventing erosion. They know all of those things. They are land stewards. That's where all of their wealth and, and capital is. It's in the soil. So when we talk to farmers about perennials, they're like, yeah, we get it. That's amazing. But is it economically viable? And in the current system, that's a fair question. So I think for us, it's incumbent upon the Land Institute to really make sure that at least today, our crops are economically viable as well as, as ecologically viable as food. And so for us, it's, we have to make sure that, you know, this is a, a value exchange with farmers where they're truly getting benefits both to their soil but also you know to supporting themselves and their communities. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm speaking with Tammy Kimbler, Chief Communications Officer at the Land Institute. But I wonder if you could kind of sum up how a perennial crop is truly sustainable in a food system, food production system. When we say it's truly sustainable, that's what we mean because the crop persists over time, soil doesn't erode. Because it has deep roots, water infiltration is taken care of. And because it's leveraging the power of the sun for a much longer part of the year, it has more resilient roots and it can adapt to drought and and other climate-driven impacts. Now, that's not to say that perennial agriculture and regenerative agriculture aren't mutually beneficial. Um, Kernza is being utilized in some of these systems now to great effect. 
But our vision is very long term. And by long term, I mean 100 years. Um, so while we may overlap and be mutually beneficial, you know, for the next 50 years, our goal is to eventually be able to show that perennial grain crops in and of themselves are a solution. Thanks to our guest, Tammy Kimbler with the Land Institute. And check out their website for more on what they're doing. Our website is mothering-earth.com. Thanks so much for listening. This is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. The views and opinions expressed on Mothering Earth do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of this station.